Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 29 through 34 I'm going to cover today. Our context is this. Chapter 15 is all about resurrection. The first several verses, 11 or 12, I think, were concerning the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then Paul goes into the next section, all the way up to verse 28. He talks about I think it's verse 12 through 28. He talks about the resurrection of Christians, not the resurrection of Christ, but resurrection of Christians. The two are intimately tied together. He tries to show that one you don't have one without the other. If you don't have the resurrection of Christ, you don't have the resurrection of Christians. If you don't have the resurrection of Christians, you don't have the resurrection of Christ. Now, in this short section from verses 29 through 34, Paul is going to talk about the practical applications of the resurrection of the dead, why it's so important in one's actual spiritual life. He's going to finish up the chapter and talking about the nature of the resurrection body when we are raised. We'll take that up next audio. So now, starting in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 29, we read this. Otherwise, what will they do who are being baptized for the dead? Paul asked. If the dead are not raised at all, then why are people baptized for them? Now, when he says otherwise, he means otherwise if there's no resurrection of the dead. Otherwise, then the reality that there is the resurrection of the dead. If there's not resurrection of the dead, then how are we going to explain all these people out here being baptized for the dead? For obviously, those people who are being baptized for the dead are doing it because they are doing it in hopes and an expectation of being resurrected. And so, therefore, it's obvious that people believe in the resurrection of the dead. Otherwise, they're wasting their time. So Paul uses that as an argument. Now, of course, we don't know what that means, being baptized for the dead. Whatever it was, it was going on at the time, because Paul says, who are being baptized for the dead. So that shows that this was still going on at Corinth, and Paul appeals to it. Now, nobody knows what this was, baptism for the dead. Let me read from Adam Clark, quote, This is certainly the most difficult verse in the New Testament. For notwithstanding the greatest and wisest men have labored to explain it, there are to this day nearly as many different interpretations of it as there are interpreters. In other words, you and I ain't going to figure this one out. Ladies and gentlemen, it doesn't really matter, however, because it's an incidental point. However, if you're a curious person like I am, don't you just want to know what was going on? Well, I've decided long ago I'm not going to know. I'm not going to ever know until maybe when I get to heaven, if it's even important when I get up there, I might ask somebody. But you and I aren't going to know. But I will I will be able to give you some speculations. I've got six, every one of, every one of them as weak as the next one. Here's the first speculation. Baptism for the dead refers to living believers being baptized for believers who had died unbaptized. That's the NIV study Bible. That's probably as reasonable as you're going to get. They did a baptism by proxy there, which was not a normative practice. If it was the practice at Corinth, it was never found anywhere else. Somebody dies. Oh, they hadn't got baptized yet. Well, we're going to baptize ourselves for them. Uh, speculation number two. It refers to Christian baptism which anticipates the baptized one's resurrection of the dead. We're being baptized because of death which has been conquered and which and and the conquering of death has been symbolized by this baptism because we come out of the water resurrected to death, resurrected from death. So we are baptized for, for death, in other words. We're baptized in order to take care of this problem of death. That's NIV Study Bible's speculation. Option number three, baptism for the dead could refer to new converts who fill the ranks of Christians who have died. In other words, the dead are Christians who have gone on to the Lord. We need more people coming into the church to take place for them. And as soon as they come in, they confess their faith and then we baptize them. They're being baptized to take the place of the dead who have left. 
The problem with that is, well, how does that refer to resurrection? It has nothing to do with the resurrection. How does that help Paul advance his argument concerning the resurrection? It doesn't. So that's a weak speculation. Speculation number four. This is John Gill. Baptism for the dead refers to diverse baptisms of the Jews. In other words, the Jews might have had some kind of practice of baptism for the dead. What it was, I don't know. I don't know what Gill means by that. Fifth speculation. Baptism for the dead could refer to washing a dead body by the Jews in anticipation of its eventual resurrection. John Gill suggests but denies that. Washing a dead body? Otherwise, what would we do for those who were being washed because they're dead? Well, I don't know. I don't think so. Numbers, I don't know. Who knows? It's so obscure that nobody knows. Verse, uh, option number six. Baptism for the dead refers to the doctrine of you're being baptized for the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead. In other words, this is John Gill's idea. Whenever a baptism was done, it was to show that the dead would be resurrected. Otherwise, what will they do who were being baptized in order to show that dead people are going to be resurrected? Baptized for dead. Well, if you got a better idea, please email me. I don't know what it is, but that's not really the main point. The main point is, is they were doing something back then that was being baptized for the dead, and it had something to do with the resurrection. It showed that they believed in resurrection, and so all of you resurrection deniers out there in Corinth, what are you talking about? There is a resurrection of the dead, which Paul has hit on very hard in this chapter. We go to verse 30, 1 Corinthians 15. Why are we in danger every hour? Now, you might think this is a sudden switch of topics. Actually, it's not, because what Paul is saying here is, why do we risk our necks preaching the resurrection of the dead if it doesn't exist? Why are we in danger every hour preaching this doctrine and getting us themselves in trouble? People don't like it. They get upset. They laugh at us. They might even throw rocks at us. Who knows? Paul, of all men, would be the most stupid to go around doing that, putting himself in danger of preaching a doctrine that didn't exist, that wasn't true preaching a resurrection of the dead that did not exist. How was Paul in danger every hour? Well, in order to elevate his authority in the eyes of the super apostles who were criticizing his authority in Corinth, he goes into great detail of what dangers he underwent. Let's look ahead to that. This is in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 23 through 29. Are they servants of Christ? Talking about the super apostles who were opposing him at Corinth. Are they servants of Christ? I'm talking like a madman. I'm a better one with far more labors, many more imprisonments, far worse beatings, near death many times. Five times I received 39 lashes from Jews. Three times I was beaten with rods by the Romans. Once I was stoned by my enemies. Three times I was shipwrecked. I have spent a night and a day in the open sea on frequent journeys. I faced dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, the Jews, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the open country, dangers on the sea and dangers among false brothers, labor and hardship, many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often without food, cold and lacking clothing, not to mention other things. There is the daily pressure on me, my care for all the churches. Who is weak, and I am not weak. Who is made to stumble, and I do not burn with indignation. Well, now there are the marks of a true apostle, folks. And that's why Paul was the greatest one of them all. Because the early twelve, well, they did get killed. I mean, they did get executed. But I mean, as far as their, their life, well, Paul did too. But as far as their normal life, they had some persecution from the Jews. But it's nothing like what Paul went through. So he was in danger every hour, as he says in verse thirty. Chapter 15, we go to verse 31 of chapter 15. I affirm by the pride in you that I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. 
Now, it's amazing that Paul could affirm or swear or affirm that, uh, swear by the pride he has in the Corinthians. This is after all he has done in this chapter, in this book, not in this chapter, but in the book of 1 Corinthians, to blast them for all their failures. They took the Lord's Supper wrongly, got drunk, before and offended the poor brethren by eating like gluttons before they got there. They were divided up into factions. They lived on the milk of the word rather than the meat of the word. They didn't do, use church discipline against a man sleeping with a stepmother. They were abusing spiritual gifts. They were pride of their worldly, philosophical, and rhetorical knowledge. On and on and on they were screwing up, and yet Paul says, I am proud of you guys. Now there's an application there. If you're dealing with Christians who aren't flying right, and most of the time they won't be, not according to our exalted standards that we have in Jesus, our example, you got to maintain your pride in them. you got to look at who they are. They might not be flying right, and they might not be performing exactly like you want them to do, but who are they? They're the saints of Christ. They're the holy ones of Christ. They're his children, and you need to be proud of them. Paul says he dies every day. There's two options as to how we can interpret die. We could interpret die in a spiritual sense, as John Gill does. He mentions at least. In other words, you die to sin every day. Now, actually, that's how most Christians today interpret it, I guess, because we can't contemplate being in the face of physical death every day. It's sort of foreign to our experience. And so we take it that way spiritually. But there's another way to take it, and I believe it's the proper way to take it. When Paul says, I die every day, he is being he's speaking figuratively 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 for this proposition i am exposed to death every day adam clark and jameson fawcett and brown say that that's what paul means i am exposed to death every day i die every day which means i am facing death every day and the implication of that is if i am killed without hope in the resurrection where would that leave me there's got to be a resurrection you people in corinth who don't believe in the resurrection of the christian body there's got to be a resurrection otherwise I'm, when I die and face death, I've got no hope of being resurrected from the death. And I face death every day. Here's some scriptures talking about how Paul died daily or faced death every day. Second Corinthians 4, 11 through 12. For we who live are always given over to death because of Jesus, so that Jesus' life may also be revealed in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. And when he says given over to death in that verse, I think he's talking about being put in physical danger of his life. 2 Corinthians 1, verses 8 through 9. For we don't want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction that took place in Asia. We were completely overwhelmed beyond our strength, so that we even despaired of life. Indeed, we personally had a death sentence within ourselves, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. He's talking physically there. He had a death sentence. And when you have a death sentence and you're facing death, you've got no choice but to trust in God. Who raises people from the dead? Because if you're about to die with that death sentence and you're not going to be raised, what hope do you have? Not much. Second Corinthians 11, verse 23. Are they servants of Christ? I'm talking like a madman again. These are the super apostles that were opposing Paul's authority in Corinth. Are they servants of Christ? I'm talking like a madman. I'm a better one with far more labors, many more imprisonments, far worse beatings, near death. Many times, near death. We go now to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 32. If I fought wild animals in Ephesus with only human hope, what good did that do to me? What good did that do me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Well, there's your Epicurean philosophy. There's no 
afterlife. There's no next life. So let's just live life to the fullest on earth and get enslaved to every kind of lust and corruption and bodily disease and gluttony and alcoholism and sexually transmitted diseases that we can because tomorrow we're not going to die. It's a perfectly pitiful philosophy. But that's the only philosophy you're left with if you don't believe in the resurrection of the body, Paul is saying. Now, there's a question here when Paul says, I fought wild animals in Ephesus. I just assume he's talking about people who were crazy like wild animals. He was using wild animals as a metaphor. But some people actually think he, was, he literally fought wild animals. Here's some arguments in favor of that idea that Paul literally fought wild animals. If the wild animals were symbolic of human beings that he fought, well, Paul was in little or no danger of, from human beings in Ephesus. Remember, he didn't go into that theater when they had the riot about greatest Diana of the Ephesians. He, he didn't go into the theater. And there were no other opponents mentioned in the scriptures at Ephesus except Demetrius. So, so what's Paul referring to here? Wild beasts must have been real. Well, the problem with that is... I'm sure a lot of things happened to Paul that weren't written down. So I have no trouble believing that the wild animals he met in Ephesus were people that were acting like wild animals. Some people who are in favor of the literal interpretation of wild animals refer to 2 Corinthians 1, verses 8 and 9. I'll read parts of those verses. In verse 8, Paul says, In Asia we were completely overwhelmed beyond our strength so that we even despaired of life. Well, that could be from an animal, but it also can be from people. But it could also be from people. Verse 9 in Second Corinthians 1 says that we personally had a death sentence within ourselves. And people say, well, that refers to animals. That could refer to people, too. So you see, that's sort of a weak suggestion, I think. But Paul is talking about, in my humble opinion, is that he figuratively faced a lot of bad opposition. And these this opposition he figuratively referred to as wild beast. Now, the NIV study Bible agrees with this and gave reasons why this is more a more likely interpretation. There is no evidence in Acts 19 that Paul ever faced actual wild lions. Adam Clark points that out too. Gill disagrees with that, though. He says this, but to this it may be replied that Luke does not relate everything that befell him and the rest, and his omission of this is no sufficient argument against it. Besides, a literal sense not to be departed from unless there is a necessity for it, and especially when it is suitable to the context and to the thread and reasoning of the discourse, as it is certainly here. The literal sense best agrees with the apostle's argument. Well, that's an argument from silence, basically. I don't believe it. I believe Paul's talking about the people that he fought. Second reason that the NIV study Bible thinks that it's people and not animals, Paul didn't say anything about wild beast when enumerating his sufferings in other places. Adam Clark points that out. Adam Clark also says, also, other similar metaphors are understood to be metaphorical. Adam Clark says it's unlikely the Roman citizens such as Paul will be subjected to wild beasts. That's a pretty good argument. Clark mentions that Tertullian and Chrysostom, the early church fathers, famous ones, they deny the literal interpretation. Well, if that's true, then it wasn't real wild beast. What kind, of wild, what kind of wild beasts were there? John Gill suggests they were evil men or even demons. I think it's probably evil men. The demons are always behind evil men anyway, aren't they? This phrase, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, that did not come from the pagan poet's Epicurus, the pagan philosopher Epicurus. It actually came from the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 22, verse 13. But look, joy and gladness, Butchering of cattle, 
slaughtering of sheep, eating of meat, and drinking of wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Yeah, eat and drink till the coronavirus comes and destroys the stock market, like happened in the last three days. Eat and drink. Yeah, everything's just going to be so hunky-dory here on this life. And we don't have a next life to enjoy. What a philosophy of life. Of course, Paul is appealing to the Christians at Corinthians because he knows that that's no way to live. That's not going to get the job done. So he's saying, you better believe in the resurrection of the dead. You don't have any hope. You might as well live like a hedonist. Now, Paul says in verse 32 of 1 Corinthians 15, what good did that do me? If I fought wild animals in Ephesus with only human hope, what good did that do me? In other words, if I'm fighting wild animals and they're getting ready to kill me and I had the sentence of death in me, why did I risk my life if I'm not going to be raised from the dead? If I know that I'm going to be raised from the dead, I can risk my life with no trouble because it's not a big deal. I, I don't want to die, but if I do die, I'm going to live forever. Now, that's the philosophy of life. That beats the Epicurean philosophy hands down. We go to 1 Corinthians 15:33. Do not be deceived, Paul continues. Bad company corrupts good morals. Now you might ask, why in the world does Paul say this right here in the midst of a discussion of the resurrection of the dead? Well, as the NIV Study Bible points out, Paul is referring to those who held the correct doctrine concerning the resurrection. Good morals, when he says those who have good morals, those are the ones who believe in the resurrection, and the bad company are those who don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. So you guys keep hanging around with these false teachers who are denying the resurrection of the dead. Their bad company is going to corrupt your good morals, your good doctrine. Again, Paul doesn't make too big a distinction between doctrine and morals here. He's quoting, actually, a famous Greek poet, the Greek poet Menander, who lived from approximately 342 or 341 B.C. to 290 B.C., Famous guy, most all of his works have been lost. Fragments of a, dozens of his plays have been found. They all got, the plays got lost in the Middle Ages. This particular quotation came from the Greek comedy Thais, T-H-A-I-S. Bad company corrupts good morals, and Menander probably got the quotation from Euripides. And of course, you hear people saying this even today. Remember, I can almost hear my mother saying, you better watch out who you associate with. Bad company corrupts good morals. And it's true. It's absolutely true because you feel constrained to to adopt the sinful practices of your peers. Peer pressure is very powerful. And also, that's a, that's a true statement. And Paul is saying these people that don't pre teach the resurrection of the body, they're going to corrupt you. Now, this is true not just in that situation, but in general. you got people living in your church that are living in adultery or fornicating with unmarried people and that kind of thing, practicing homosexuality, bestiality, or whatever else that there is that they're doing or embezzling money from their company or not, pay, not paying their salaries of, of their workmen or whatever it is they're doing. And pretty soon that gets to be a, a, an accepted practice. Well, you've corrupted the whole church. A little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump. The Corinthians will be probably familiar with this phrase, bad company corrupts good morals, because Menander was a famous Greek poet, and the Corinthians, of course, were Greek, and we're not talking but about 300 years earlier. Notice how Paul connects good doctrine with good morals. Bad company corrupts good morals. He's talking about doctrine, but he mentions morals. It might be that's just because of the way the, the quotation went, and he just used it loosely. But it, we need to point out that it is perfectly possible that men with bad doctrine can be good morally. I'm an atheist. They love to say, well, we don't believe in God. We're moral. And that's true. You can have civically moral people who believe the most atrocious things. Look at how many politicians 
are good politicians, even though they got a little bit of love, a little bit of sugar on the side. Remember Dwight Eisenhower had his mistress from overseas? How about Franklin Roosevelt? Gosh, I forgot the name of his mistress. But she was down with him at Warm Springs there when he was about to die. And when he did die, she had to leave because she wasn't his official wife. I could go on and on about that. It seems, how about Bill Clinton? Lord have mercy. Oh, but he was a good president. Had a high approval rating when he left. So, no, we don't want to connect morals directly with doctrine, with proper belief. But Paul here is saying that you don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. You could get corrupted. And I suspect he's even talking about morally, because down the road somewhere, people are going to start slipping on morals as well as doctrine. It's not necessary, but it's possible. And again, he probably is, he's just quoting the quotation, bad company corrupts good morals, because that's the way the quotation went. He, he wasn't really trying to get it to the point that you believe in bad doctrine, you're going to end up being or a, 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 a sinning reprobate. Paul says, do not be deceived. He's saying, look, Corinthians, what I'm telling you is so obvious that even a heathen poet could see it. Even a heathen poet like Menander could see that bad company corrupts good morals. So, hey, how about you guys don't be deceived either? You don't, you don't need special revelation. You don't need a vision from God to see that. 1 Corinthians 15:34. Paul continues, Come to your senses and stop sinning, for some people are ignorant about God. I say this to your shame. Again, he's just said he's proud of them. <laughs> he says you're shameful what you're doing. Come stop sinning. He says, stop sinning. I'm still proud of you, but stop sinning. That's really interesting how he deals with the Corinthians. How are they sinning? They were sinning by denying or doubting the resurrection of the dead, according to the NIV study Bible. Some people are ignorant about God. They were ignorant about the resurrection. And if they're ignorant about the resurrection, you're ignorant about God. So that's what Paul's referring to. You ignoramuses, you don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. And it's Highly ironic because the Corinthian church prided itself on its knowledge. Remember chapter 2, I believe it was. Oh, you have knowledge, 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 but you don't have love. And that's also in 1 Corinthians 12 also, I think. The idea of knowledge, they had all, they had Greek knowledge. They had words of knowledge, Holy Spirit knowledge. They had Greek knowledge, philosophical knowledge. They had Greek rhetorical knowledge, but they were ignorant because they were ignorant of the resurrection of the dead. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we have finished with Paul's practical exhortations concerning the resurrection of the dead. In our next audio, we're going to start with verse 35 of 1 Corinthians 15, and we're going to talk about what is the nature of the resurrection body. A very interesting topic and an encouraging topic as we think about our future life in heaven. I hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one.